good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. Well, if you have a Bible this morning... We have made our way to the end of Romans chapter 1. Three years ago when we started Romans chapter 1, you may not have believed that we would get here. But here we are. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, we'll read all the way from 18 down to the end. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, and when you turn there, please stand in honor of God's word. I do want to thank Connor for leading uh, in Drew's absence. We're thankful for his uh, use of his gifts this morning. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, all the way down to verse 32. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Let's pray. Father, this morning from your word, I pray and I trust, we trust that you will encourage the saints, that you will convict the sinner, that your word will accomplish the purpose you have for it. We pray that you would speak through your word I recognize that I have nothing to say apart from what you have said. Lord, we pray that you would teach us this morning and that you would encourage us in Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. 
Well, I've joked this week uh, with anyone who will listen to me talk about my sermon prep that uh, this is just such a great way to send off 2020. Um, because if you think 2020 was bad, Paul has something to say about you. He, it's true. He ends chapter one here at the bottom of this spiral that began in verse 18, really. This downward spiral, this continual argument of the effects of sin. And there's this continual refrain in Romans chapter one, the second half, where he says, God gave them up. In verse uh, 24, you see that he gave them up first to impurity. You see that second, he gave them up to dishonorable passions in verse 26. And then this morning, our text in verse 28 and following, we see that it says that he gave them up to a debased mind. And so this morning, as we look into the text, I will confess to you that I, as I look at this text, do not see in it any gospel hope. But we also realize that Romans 1, 28 to 32 don't exist by themselves in a vacuum. So this morning, my hope for us is that we will realize one thing, that as we painfully peer into the depths of the law, as we painfully ponder our own depravity, my hope for us is that we would understand the bad news because the good news is only good if we understand this bad news, this depth of our depravity, this depth of our sinfulness only serves to show us how glorious and great the gospel is. And so if you're taking notes this morning, our sermon in a sentence is we fulfill all unrighteousness. It's really two sentences, unless you want to use a semicolon. We fulfill all unrighteousness. Christ fulfills all righteousness. We fulfill all unrighteousness. Christ fulfills all righteousness. So this morning, my hope and what I plan to do is I want to walk through verses 28 to 32 and look at what Paul says is the nature of sin based in this text. What is Paul saying is the nature of sin? And so if you're taking notes, there are seven things that I think Paul says about sin here in this text. And the first one I want to point out is sin's root, sin's root. And you find that in verse 28. It says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, sin's root is that sin begins as a refusal to recognize the true God. Now, whether you want to call this idolatry or pride or arrogance or uh, a mind that is darkened, Sin's root is that it begins as a refusal to recognize the true God for who he is. I want you to notice the cause and effect here in verse 28. And sin, so here's the cause. The cause is that they did not see fit to acknowledge God. The effect is that God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Why did God give them up here? He says in in verse 28, why did God give them up to a debased mind? He gave them up to a debased mind because they refused to recognize his true nature, and status. They refused to recognize who he was. And interestingly enough, this is the exact opposite of the wisdom given to us in Proverbs 3.6. You may remember it. In all your ways, acknowledge him. 
And here we see in, in verse 28 of Romans 1, it says that by their unrighteousness, if we, if we pull that back up from the beginning of this section, they did not see fit to acknowledge God. Can we pause and marvel at the audacity of that statement? Something that we might just look over. They did not see fit to acknowledge God, the arrogance of that statement. Because verse 19 has told us that what can be known about God is plain to them. It's gone on in verse 20 to say that his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived since the beginning of the world. To have a plain, clear revelation in the created world, to see it, and then to reply, he's not the creator. There's no creator. This is pure evil. They did not see fit to acknowledge God. And yet we have to ask the question, who is the they? Because this evil was our evil. We were those fools who said in our hearts, there is no God. We were those who said, sure, there's a God. But that scripture shows he's, he is ugly or evil or unjust. May we never forget that we were those who did not see fit to acknowledge God. I want you to see what happens. That's the cause. They did not see, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, it says God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. This is the refrain of this section. This, we've, we've talked about it in the past few weeks of judicial abandonment. Uh, Steve Lawson said There's a, there comes a point in time when God gives them a shove in the direction they want to go. There comes a point in time when God gives them a shove in the direction that they want to go to go. He says here, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. Now our temptation may be to see, to say how reactionary of God, how vindictive, but this is not a reaction. It's not that he said, oh, well, if you're just not going to, to follow me, I guess I'll get back at you. It's not reactionary on God's part. It was merely, to use Dr. Lawson's terms, it was merely a divine shove in the direction they wanted to go. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. The arrogance of refusing to see God as who he is acts as the beginning here, or the, the, the root of a debased mind a divine shove in the direction they had already chosen. The cause and effects, an effect here, since they did not see fit, God gave them up. The word de debased here is, is a really interesting word. It could be translated depraved. So kind of our, our theological concept of total depravity. But more interestingly, the word debased here could be translated counterfeit. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a counterfeit mind, a fake mind, a mind that was refusing to do what was good, 
refusing to do what was right, refusing to do what was even natural, as we discussed last week. A mind, a counterfeit mind that was devoid of all goodness, a counterfeit mind that was completely tainted with the illogic of sin. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, he gave them up to a counterfeit mind. This is the first step. The first step of the descending staircase into a debased, depraved, counterfeit mind is simply refusing to acknowledge that God is who he said he is. The first step down this staircase, down this spiral, is to refuse to acknowledge that God is who he said he is. We see this in the Old Testament, in the first human beings who ever lived. Adam and Eve did not eat of the forbidden fruit because they were confused about what God said. It's not as if if Adam and Eve had written down his command, they would have done the right thing. The serpent said, did God really say? And they refused the plain, clear revelation from God in order to believe what the serpent said. They wanted to believe you will not surely die, and they disobeyed. And my fear is that as we read verses 28 and following, I fear that we subconsciously feel pity for those listed or even feel pity for Adam and Eve as if, if they had just kind of had some more counsel or if, or if, the, if the, the individuals mentioned in verse 28 just had a little bit more counsel, then they could, they could make the better choice. Or that somehow if God is sovereign, that that means that all of the individuals in verse 28 and following are just mere pawns who are being acted upon. But as we look at Romans 1, what we have to understand is that the action of suppressing the truth, the action of the sin is the responsibility of the individual. Affirming God's sovereignty and human responsibility go hand in hand. This is a conscious choice by Adam in the garden. It's a conscious choice by every human being ever created. Calvin said, by a perverted choice, they had preferred their own vanities to God. Thus, the error by which they were deceived was self-chosen. And since they thought they knew better, God gave them up to a debased mind. So we've seen sin's root, a refusal to acknowledge God for who he is. Number two, we'll see sin's depth. As we continue on in verses 28 and 29, it says, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. Sin permeates every part of human existence. We're tempted to think that sin is something outside of us that makes its way inside, but sin flows from the inside out. If you look at verse 28, it says, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. It started in the mind and moved out into the actions. This is our, our theological concept of total depravity, or uh, I like better what R.C. Sproul calls it, radical corruption. The effects of the fall extend to every single 
parts of our being. They, it comes from the core of who we are. It's not that we are as bad as we could be. It's that every single thing we do apart from Christ is tainted by sin. Every single thought, every single word, every single action, we are radically corrupt apart from Christ. Jeremiah 17 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Sin is this movement then from the inside out. It it comes from within. It's not something that is just added into us from the outside in. But I want you to see here in verse 29 that all of humanity here in Paul's language, all of humanity is identified by their sinfulness. Look at verse 29. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. They are full of envy, murder, and so on. This word filled is is fascinating to me. In verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. This word filled is the only time it's used in this way in all of the scriptures. But the word itself, the root itself of this word, the Greek word for filled, is, is the same word used for fulfilled. It's the word that when the scriptures say that Christ fulfilled all righteousness, that's the word that is being used here in verse 29. And so if you take it a little bit more literally, it says that they fulfilled all unrighteousness. That in and of ourselves, what is the accomplishment that we have? It is that we fulfill all unrighteousness. This is the opposite of Christ. That they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. That they fulfilled all manner of unrighteousness. But in case we didn't get it, he goes on again in verse 29 to say, they are full of envy, murder, and so on. The word full here literally means full. It's not just kind of full. It's not just part of the way full. It says full. We're tempted to think of sin sin as something that's simply attached to humans, something that humans simply struggle with, something that that we would consider just flaws about us. But apart from Christ, sin is who we are. It is our identity to the core. He says, they fulfilled all unrighteousness. They are full of envy, murder, so on. And we we see this in action in the Old Testament. Adam and Eve fell in Romans chapter 3, and it only took three chapters for the text to record in Genesis 6, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It only took three chapters. We have to ask the question, who is the they here? Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. Verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. They are gossips, though they know God's decree. Who is the they? Well, if we're following the argument, we go all the way back up to verse 18. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of who? Of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. The they then must mean that we get all put into that they, which means that the they is the men who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. All people are the they. And since they did not see fit, But Ephesians 2 would say that the they is also we. Paul says in Ephesians 2, and you were dead. That you once walked in trespasses and sins. That you followed the course of the world, the prince of the power of the air. That we all once lived in the passions of our, our, our flesh. That we all carried out the desires of the body and the mind. That we all were by nature children of wrath. And remember, the, the good news is only good if the bad news is understood. So we may we never forget that we were they. That we find ourselves apart from Christ here. So we see sin's depth. Sin affects every part of humanity. But number three, if you're taking notes, we see sin's breadth. Sin's breadth. If you look at verses 29 to 31. They are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Our refusal to acknowledge God reveals itself in a myriad of ways. Romans 3.23 would say all have sinned. Paul exposes here, I think first, the self-righteousness of his first readers and maybe our self-righteousness as well. So if you remember from last week as we uh, discussed verses 26 and 27, uh, Paul has brought up the sin of homosexuality, that the exchange of natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And it's almost as if Paul thought as he, as he is writing that, that there's this Jewish audience who would say, you know what? Homosexuality, that's a Gentile sin. We don't struggle with that. That's, that's, that's nothing that we struggle with. And you may even have sat here last week and said, you know, homosexuality, I've never struggled with that. Uh, I, would, I would never, that's, that's not, I would never do that. And it's almost if Paul says, okay, so if, if, you, if you weren't that, surely you can find yourself somewhere in this list. Paul lists all of these other offenses, all of these other sins that garner the same judgment and wrath from God for eternity. So maybe it wasn't in your sexuality, but maybe it was in your unrighteousness, your malice, your murder, your maliciousness, your gossip, your haughty attitude, your faithlessness. Because the reality is that comparing our personal sins to the sins of those around us can only lead to self-righteousness. When we create the standard of, well, I'm not as bad as fill in the blank. Well, I'm not as bad as him or I'm not as bad as her. When we create that standard, what ends up happening is we have, we have created a standard that is far lower than the standard that God has set. The standard that he set is in Matthew 5, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. Also in Matthew 5, he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Think of the holiest person you can think of. If you're not more holy than that person, then you've missed the mark. Comparing our personal sins to the sins of those around us only leads to our self-righteousness. And Paul exposes our self-righteousness. But I think Paul also does another thing. Paul exposes our sinful rationalizations that there are some sins that are just lesser, that they're not a big deal. I think it's vital that Paul lists gossip with murder in the same list. That he, he lists disobeying parents with this, in the same list as just continual evil. That he lists foolishness with haters of God. That there's not some kind of hierarchy here, listen. He just lists them out and they're all here together. I think what this text communicates then is that there is no small sin. If every sin begins by refusing to acknowledge God as who he is, if every sin begins by refusing to know God for who he is, then every sin is worthy of eternal punishment. As we look into the Old Testament, what we see is it was one sin. It was one sin that exiled Adam and Eve out of the garden. It was one sin that plunged all of humanity into death. It was one sin that kept Moses from the promised land. It was one sin that struck Nadab and Abihu down. It was one sin that struck Ananias and Sapphira down. There are no small sins. And if you're banking on simply not being one of those quote unquote really bad people, then your check will bounce when it comes time. There is no small sin. One sin plunged all of humanity into death and decay. And I'm thankful that Paul lists by the power of the Spirit all of these different sins because we all find ourselves, even if it is our old selves, somewhere in this list. Charles Hodge said, wherever men have existed, there have they shown themselves to be sinners, ungodly and unrighteous, unrighteous, and therefore justly exposed to the wrath of God. There's no room for self-righteousness here. And while I don't know that it would be helpful for us to walk through each of these sins and define what they are, most of them are self-explanatory, I do think it would be helpful for us to point out a few I think there are a few that our culture is especially good at. And then there's a few that I think our culture has successfully conditioned us to be okay with. So if you look here at the list in in verse 30, nestled right in there between slander and insolence, it says haters of God. I think it's important that we recognize this because there is, there is this prevailing belief in our culture that while I, don't really, while I don't really care to be religious or to acknowledge God, I'm not a bad person and I'm, I'm not evil. I'm just kind of neutral. And Paul does not give us a category for neutrality. He says you are either a lover of God or a hater of God. So he, he mentions haters of God. I think in verse 30 again, he says, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful. And then this one is very interesting. 
in my mind, inventors of evil. All you have to do is turn on the news. We live in a world that is inventing evil day by day. All you have to do is look at the sexual revolution in our day, and you can say, this is truly the invention of evil. New kinds of evil being invented over and over and over and over again. But I think one of the most pressing things we see in our own society is mentioned in verse 31. And it may not be where we, where we think. Verse 31 says, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. The word heartless there is a, is a really interesting word. The, the definition in, of the Greek word that we get our word heartless from is, is a suppressed natural care for parents and children. A suppressed natural care for parents and children. So heartlessness then would be suppressing the natural care that we have for parents or children. We live in a world We live in a culture that is a culture of death that has suppressed so clearly the natural care for parents and children, whether it's through abortion or through assisted suicide, the culture of death is is shouting at us every day. And you might say, well, I'm, I'm not really tempted toward any of that. I think there are some in this list that the culture, our culture around us has conditioned us to be okay with. If, if you look there at the end of verse 29, it says they are gossips, slanderers. I love that these two are put together because the, the really literal meaning of gossip is just secret slander. He says they are gossips and slanderers. And, and we are conditioned to think that's not a big deal. The, the world around us, that, that's just normal talk. That gossip and slander, I mean, that, that's daily activities, And I think another one that our culture has conditioned us to, to be okay with is in that last section in verse 31, faithless. There seems to be a prevailing attitude and thought that losing your faith is this glorified or attractive thing. That if you're deconstructing everything that you known to be true from the scriptures to figure it out on your own, that that's somehow glorified or good. There are few things more evil than looking at the text of scripture and saying, yes, I see that that's there and then denying it and saying, I'm going to figure it out on my own. What's happening here in verse 30, the end of 29, 30, in 31, is a rejection of God's standard in order to create our own standard. To call evil good, to call good evil. It's a rejection of the standard that God has created, which is his holiness, his righteousness, the standard that he has created to say, let's set up a new standard, one that's more attractive, one that's more palatable. And so we ask the question, well, what is our response? We, we hear these things and, and maybe your first response, your first temptation is to say, man, like I don't struggle with those things. I've got it all together. I've got it figured out. But we must refuse to be self-righteous because we know as Lawson shared with us last week from 1 Corinthians 6, such were some of us. 
We, we have to refuse to be self-righteous. But I think also as we look at the world around us and we see these patterns that the scripture has laid out playing out before our eyes, we mourn the fallen state of the world around us as an affront to our holy God. But more importantly, we, we mourn the remnants of the old man within us that is a, an affront to our holy God. But finally, I think we hope in the gospel. That's the beauty of 1 Corinthians 6, such for some of you, but you were washed. Romans 1, 28 to 32 doesn't negate verses 16 and 17. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. So we've seen sin's breadth. Number four, let's see sin's end. Sin's end. Verse 32 says, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. The just penalty for all sin is death. We can't lose sight of the fact that, that death is just. That because God is holy and because his standard is perfection, that all sin deserves death. That death is the proper punishment for all sin. This word here in verse 32, though they know God's decree, it's the idea of God's righteous decree. It's the same language used when, when God speaks justification over the church. This is a righteous decree from God. It is the proper punishment for all sin. All who sin deserve to die. God is holy. He is holy. He is so holy that even the things we consider to be small sins are heinous. We don't apologize for this harsh truth because we depend on God's justice for our salvation. God doesn't sweep sins under the rug. And we see this throughout the Old Testament, this, this refrain in every genealogy of the Old Testament, and he died. We see this in the flood. We are right to focus in on Noah and his family and the salvation that was provided for them. But the just penalty for what we saw in Genesis chapter 6, the, the, the continual evil thoughts of man is death. We see nations wiped out. We see Achan and his family wiped out for their sin in Joshua 7. We see Sodom and Gomorrah, the parents in the wilderness before Israel entered into the promised land. Over and over and over again, we see death. But I think this text actually shows us a little bit of Paul's theology of sanctification. If you look here in verse 32, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. This is what we'll see when we get to Romans chapter 6. But Paul's theology of sanctification is that if we're in Christ, we will not go on practicing these things because we have tasted something better. But all sins deserve Death, sin's end is death. Number five, sin's folly. Sin's folly is that men continue in sin, although their conscience, consciences bear witness to that just penalty of death. If you look at verse 32, the second part. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Men continue in sin, although their conscience, consciences bear witness to the just penalty of death. I quoted Psalm 14.1 earlier that the fool says in his heart that there is no God. Donald Gray Barnhouse used to use that verse whenever he would talk to someone who proclaimed themselves to be an atheist. 
The word fool carries with it, he would say, the connotation of being insane. So he would ask this question. He would say, so were you telling the truth when you said that you didn't believe that there is a God? Because I want to know whether you are crazy or a liar. Listen to what he says. For there is no alternative. Not only do all men know that there is a God, but they know that he must hate and judge sin. We ask the question, well, how do they know? Verses 18 and 19 say that it's been clearly revealed through general revelation, through the things that have been made. As we go on into chapter 2, we'll see in verse 15 that, that all men have been given a conscience to know the truth, to know that he must hate and judge sin. And so we ask the question, well, if they know, and it says, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they still do them. Well, why do they do them? Because they love sin. John 3, 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Israel knew exactly what would happen. In Deuteronomy 28, when God gave them the covenant, he said, if you don't do this, you will die. This is what will happen. And Israel said, okay. And then they did it anyway. Why do people continue in sin? Because they love it. All are without excuse. There is no one innocent. And I think finally we get to the bottom of the spiral at the end of verse 32. So the sixth point is sin's fellowship. The bottom of the spiral. Sin's fellowship. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Sinners not only celebrate their own sin, but celebrate and encourage it in others. It's as if getting more people involved would dilute the shame. As if having more people on in that sin with you would create some kind of better feeling in your heart. Paul closes this section by saying it's not enough for them to sin personally, but it must be celebrated. I don't have to hide this in our culture. You turn on your TV, you look at a billboard, you read political platforms, you have a conversation with your neighbor, you see this. We don't have to look deep into our culture to see this. But we don't have to look deep into our own hearts to see this either. This is the nature of sin. This is the bottom of that spiral that sin desires fellowship with itself. You see this in the Old Testament, the men of the tribe of Benjamin in Judges 19. Aaron asked for everyone's gold to create the golden calf. Eve and Adam were together. Ananias and Sapphira were together. The reality is that knowing the righteous standard of their creator, they ignore it and create an opposite standard. It's the lowest form of truth suppression. Instead of shame, it's celebration. Instead of secrets, it's shouts. Join me. It's beyond just what some might say, well, it's just a fit of passion. This is premeditated. Not only do they practice such things, not only do they make a practice of doing them, but they invite others to do them with them and they approve of others joining in. Now this morning, you may be sitting here and you find yourself laid bare by the weight of your sin. And if you're apart from Christ, Let me say, that is exactly where you should be. 
Because there is no hope in ourselves after reading this text. And if you're a believer this morning, what, what, what I hope that you see is that there is no hope in yourself as, as a part of this text. So where do we find that gospel hope? If you're taking notes, lastly, number seven, we see sin's remedy. Christ fulfilled perfect righteousness on behalf of his people. My fear is that what we will do or what you will do when you read this text is, say, is do one of two things. The first thing is to despair. It's to say, if this is what it is like, and if God is holy and I am the total opposite of holy, then it's hopeless for me. Or maybe your instinct is to say, well, I see that I, I, I struggle with some of these things, but I can make it better. I can get better. I can work at it. I can, I can create some new habits. I can get some accountability partners and I can figure it out. But that's not, neither of those is sin's remedy. There is one great truth in this passage. In verse 29, it says, they fulfilled, we fulfilled all unrighteousness, but Christ has fulfilled all righteousness. It says, we had a disposition to inflict evil, but Christ had a disposition to do good, the greatest good. We are filled with covetousness, but he was filled with desire to save his people. We are filled with malice, but he was perfect in every way. We are full of envy. He was full of care. We are full of murder. And John 10 says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. We were full of strife, but he is the prince of peace. We were full of deceit, but he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We are full of maliciousness. And he said he came to proclaim the good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, receiving sight to the blind, and liberty to the oppressed. We were gossips and slanderers, and yet he was the embodiment of truth. We were haters of God, and he loved God unto death. He said, your will, not mine. We were insolent, and he humbly emptied himself, Philippians says. We were haughty. He was the perfect example of meekness as he walked the earth. We are boastful. His perceived weakness was actually strength. We are inventors of evil. He is the healer. We are disobedient to our parents. He said, my food is to do the will of my father. We are foolish. And Colossians says that in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We are faithless. He remains faithful. We are heartless. He called the children to himself and he healed the ailing. We are ruthless. And he, his pity led him to pray for his people. And if you are in him, 2 Corinthians says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The old man is gone with his identity, with his shame, with his guilt. And the new man is here with his identity in Christ. Not because we measure up to the holy standard here in Romans chapter 1, but because he did. 